Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Kevin Brophy. Uh, welcome, Kevin. Hello, Di, and thank you very much. It's uh, it's great to have you on the program. I've been meaning to get you on the program for ages, so I don't know how it's taken this long. But anyway, you've now got a brand new book of poetry and this is your ninth collection of poetry. Yes, um, and it was published um, during the COVID lockdowns in Melbourne. So it had a very quiet birth. In fact, it had a virtual um, launch. Right. Well, that's um, that's never as easy as uh, a conventional launch. Now, I'll just read a little bit of your bio. Um, you've uh, received the Mi- Wellesley Michael White Prize for Poetry, the Martha Richardson Medal for Poetry and the Calibre Prize for an Outstanding Essay and you've been patron of the Melbourne Poets Union since 2004. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and your new book, which is called In This Part of the World, is published by MPU. That's right, yep. So uh, tell me a little about Melbourne Poets Union. I used to be on the committee, but uh, not everybody will know about it, about MPU. Yeah, Melbourne Poets Union, uh, I, it goes through its ups and downs and its renaissances and its quiet periods, but it's uh, a um, grassroots community poetry advocacy and poetry support group aimed originally at ensuring that poets get paid for the, their performances and um, their publications as all trade unionists should get paid for their work. And um, lately they've been publishing poets as one of their projects and employing poets to run workshops. Now, what brought you to uh, make this particular collection? How did you decide to put these poems together? The Melbourne Poets Union were proposing um, a series of chapbooks featuring some established poets alongside a series establishing emerging poets. And I thought I had almost a manuscript uh, of of poems at that time, some some written while in Europe and some written here in Melbourne. And uh, it seemed natural to put in a manuscript that covered various different parts of the world. Yes, and it's a very wide-ranging collection of of poems. Yeah, uh, geographically quite wide, widely ranging, and and uh, I think maybe the subject matter too is quite wide ranging. And I'm, I have to say, I'm very grateful to Melbourne Poets Union for um, making it a book. 
It's a very beautiful book, uh, beautifully presented. And you had a new, you had a second launch at the Woodend Chamber Poets a few weeks ago. Yeah, uh, we celebrated the uh, the fact that we can all, as poets, now come together, and we relaunched it as a live, physical, in the flesh event. And um, the Chamber Poets uh, is a monthly reading at Woodend and it's run by Myron Lysenko, who I think is one of your old buddies. Right, he is. He's, I call him my chosen brother. That's nice. Uh, I, have, I have other brothers who I love very dearly and didn't get to choose, but I have another brother, Myron, who I did get to choose. Great, great. And, I mean, and Kevin... Just a little bit of bio. You've been a part of the Melbourne poetry uh, world since the 1970s, haven't you? Uh, pretty much, but really active, I suppose, since the since the 80s, maybe mid-80s onward. And then um, my first book of poetry was published in 1992. But, yeah, I cut my teeth at with the street poets and with the poets of Fitzroy, reading in pubs and... Uh, sometimes reading on university campuses, reading in the streets, and uh, learning to be unembarrassed about my my very embarrassing attempts at poetry early on. Yeah. And, I mean, there was a movement, a little bit of a movement at some point of bringing poetry into workplaces, like with Pio, if I remember correctly. Were you a part of that? Yeah. Uh, On the fringes of that movement, and um, more directly, I I was... part of a Melbourne Post Union initiative to bring poetry into prisons. Right. And um, following Eric Beach, Myron and I ran for nearly 10 years a series of workshops at Pentridge um, Prison. And how did that go? Uh, it went fantastically well. It had its it had its difficult moments because we weren't looked upon very kindly by, by the institution. And, and of course, in, in every institution, there's many agendas, and not all the agendas were in the direction of writing poetry. So it was tricky at times. But the, um, the, the Melbourne poet, Alan Martin, I don't know if you're aware of him, he emerged from that program with a book of poetry that got a lot of notice. Amazing. Yeah, well, it must have been potentially transformational for the prisoners involved. Yeah, I think that... A number of them were um, really desiring to find a way to express what was going on in their lives. Okay, so we'll go back to the book. Now, the first poem that I'd like you to read includes Myron, and it's for Myron, and it's subsiding. Would you like to say something about this poem before you read it? It's It's an expression of friendship towards Myron and an expression of distress on behalf of Myron for an accident that has that badly damaged his hand, and his hand will be permanently numb in some places and permanently um, disabled by the accident. And mm-hmm. for a writer, a hand carries a lot of symbolic energy, mm. as, as I suppose it does for all craftspeople. Mm. All craftspeople really are, are servants of their hands. So in, in some ways, it's... Um, trying to say that it's not just a hand. For a writer, it's not just a hand. It's the pathway of the craft of writing that's been damaged. But also, we, we share a troubled history with our fathers, as many in our generation did, and the poem's partly about that too. Subsiding, for Myron. You shake hands with me. 
the first time since your accident. Unexpected bowl of cherry pips at your feet. Split your arm open, as if your arm was a book to be opened in a fever. Your puffy fingers go round my hand, and one of those fingers, you say, is numb, cooler, softer, less pliant, but for me, indistinguishable from the others, that you deploy to lose at chess with your late-blooming father, who seems to need you now, as he has never needed you. The spring garden needs me to plant its seedlings and cut back old timber, catch glimpses of parrots in the frangipani, watch new leaves shiver as wattle birds go after insects. Your hand, still swollen, months after the accident, subsides by degrees, but will never wholly, just as neither of us can never be quite over whatever it was our fathers pressed upon us in the slow-motion accidents of their lives. Histories of the 20th century screaming along the veins in their foreheads. Once you ran away from your father, who, you now say, you love. And here I am, appointed scribe of my father's tombstone, instructing loving and devoted to be cut in stone above his fearful, at last, prophet's face. Beautiful work. It, it's, it's very multi-layered, the uh, complexity of those relationships with, with the father and how they can change over time. And mm, Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I notice quite a lot of your poems are very present. You know, they're very much engaged with where you are in the moment uh, and and the significance of, you know, the conversation and the encounter that you have in a domestic setting. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I do. And I I guess it speaks to something that... um, I've assumed about poetry or that I I value in poetry. And uh, I, I'm very aware that when we speak of the poetic, we're talking about two different experiences, really, because um, the poetic can be uh, what we find in written poetry, but the poetic can also be what we see in a bird in flight or, or what we see when we gaze at the ocean. Um, expressing its mood. Uh, so there's a kind of abstract understanding of what poetic is as well as a language-based understanding of what poetry is. And I'm very aware of both of those. I'm trying to be aware of both of those meanings as I write a poem. So that's one of the reasons I think that they try to enter into present moments. Yeah, well, I often feel there's a, a poetry and juxtaposition of things that the unexpected kind of juxtaposition creates a meaning in its own. Yes, I I, I agree with that and um, very much um, live by it, being in, heavily influenced, I guess, by the imagists, but also by by the surrealists and um, and by someone like Elizabeth Bishop who who understood that. Yeah, and how, what? How do you interpret that from the surrealist perspective? What does the surrealist? Well, the, the 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 surrealists um, tried to understand that where imagery comes from and how it might come from the unconscious and how the unconscious might put together um, a, a surgeon's table and a sewing machine, and even though it seems absurd to put them together. 
at some level, they begin to make sense. If we open ourselves to the possible connections those things might have. Yes, and and the way of seeing things with a with a different point of view, like um, the urinal put in a context of an art gallery suddenly ceases to be a urinal and becomes an art yes. object. Yes, and the handlebars of a bike becoming the horns of a bull. Right. Uh, one thing can suggest another. Um, and there's a great pleasure in one thing suggesting another. And there can sometimes be a, a suggestion of significance as well. Yes. So could you please read the poem Flight, sure. Flight Again? Flight again. As we stand thinking about bread and coffee on the first morning of what still feels like next year, the kitchen window glass stops a rare azure kingfisher in its flight, knocking it down onto the veranda, where its orange legs retract into its orange and cream-washed chest, its wings closed over its back, and its long beak open, quivering, its eyes fixed on nothing, as it lies on Patton's hand now. New honey poured out on fresh bread on the kitchen bench. Fruit itching to be stolen in the orchard. Potatoes bursting with themselves in their dark soil. The zucchinis nosing around in the new sunlight. And a kingfisher laid out under the linden tree. A small bird fearful it might have been mistaken in everything it thought it knew about flight. Very special. Yeah, yes. a very shocking and poignant moment to, to, to witness. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'd like to go to another one, forest cycling. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that one. So what inspired you to write forest cycling? Forest cycling, I guess, is one of the travel poems um, in in the book. And the title gives it away a bit because... We'd be bush cycling if we were cycling in Australia. So we're cycling in a European forest. In fact, in Italy, on the west coast of northwest coast of Italy. Hence, there are deer and wolves in these forests. And, and in fact, we were cycling on borrowed bicycles. Right, and pale flamingos. That's right, the flamingos were there too. Yeah, and the bikes weren't very good. No, they weren't. Mm, no. So, will I read it? Yep, go ahead. Okay. Forest cycling. We rode our bicycles of creaking paths beneath the pine trees, deep among deer and wolves, and walking families on Sunday strolls between the sea and a lagoon shadowed by these curving pines, followed by fumy seaweed, fish farm ponds, further salty stillness graced by pale flamingos, ancient sea walls, and the faint trailed songs of gulls, our legs going fast as fearful life, as any legs could go that day along the path rolled rough upon an earth of sand and stones and roots we know we will embrace at last. We rode on. The wolves stayed in. The deer kicked up needles in the shade. We got ourselves outside the gate, wheeled our bikes uphill, leaned them back against their house and turned to the pulling in of curtains, lighting logs, our breath recalling barely creaking whispers 
from the smallest woodland birds and mice. Beautiful work. It's, uh, you, I re- you really take us there on that journey. Thank you, yeah. And I relive it a bit as I reread it. Um, and I also know that, that, I've, that it is highly selective and I've made something of that experience. Yeah, well, you've perhaps only embraced the beautiful part of it. I'm sure there was a lot of pain and suffering wheeling up and down all those hills. <laughs> There's always a bit of anxiety as the sun goes down mm. and you're on a bicycle and you're trying to get home before dark. Yes. Especially with it, with it um, on the roads and, outside the forest. And, and people in Europe don't tend to have... Um, you know, speed limits and whatever. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah, no, but it's, uh, it, it's you've taken us there. It's great work. I was going to say, I, I, I think there are a lot of creatures in this book. I, in fact, I'd like to see a list of how many creatures there are in the book, all sorts of creatures. And partly, I think what this poem's about is is the the... the the surreal oddness of our of our creaking bicycles and our puffing pedaling in that forest compared to all the uh, the creatures who live there and make their own natural sounds there and have no trouble being there and I guess by the end of the poem i'm I'm trying if I can to make the obvious point um, that that we breathe and sigh and groan just like other creatures do in, in our own environment. Yes. It's an interesting thing, the, uh, the, you know, the environment as home or as not home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you're just mm-hmm. passing through as, as a not home and they're living there as home. Mm, yeah. So the Appian Way, that must have also been on your travels. Yes, that was, um, that was one of our... Excursions. And where where is the Appian Way? The Appian Way is just out of, not far out of Rome. Uh, it was built uh, a long time ago as a military road to for ease of access for armies from uh, A to B, uh, but became in time the the pathway of pilgrims going to Rome. Right. And I think. At it's called the Appian Way because the military architect who designed the road was named Appius, somebody Appius. Oh, okay. And now uh, this begins with a with a quotation. Yeah, I was I was reading some nineteenth century travel books while we were we were in Italy, and Chateaubriand wrote briefly about uh, the Appian Way. And, and wrote of its shadows. Oh, so would you like to read that poem? Yeah, Appian Way and the epigraph from Chateaubriand in his Recollections of Italy goes, For there are no masses so obscure, even among the rocks and foliage, but that a little light may always insinuate itself. And the poem goes, Walking on stones, with low rock walls alongside. We hear cowbells knock in fields behind the trees. The green mines of weeds are everywhere, their seeds pinned in warming cracks as the ground opens for a gentler season. 
pines bring in the quick shapes of crested larks? Why does each step feel like a new sorrow left behind? We might have dreamed this place into existence. We stop and read about the quality of late afternoon light, try to find the lit edges of moving shadows. Without regrets, we would not remember anything. Early wildflowers, careless of us, dab themselves about. Towns of hazy yellow ziggurats step down hillsides. The road presses into the land like an arm across a pillow. After our picnic, ants take what they can into the shadows. Yeah, so there's a real unusual feeling, I think, in this journey. Um, Why does each step feel like a new sorrow left behind? That's um, a kind of a feeling of purification in a way, isn't it? That you leaving the past behind and cleansing in some way. Yes, yes. And I I, I think, I can't be sure exactly what what I what 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 I write means. Yeah, yeah. But I think it has something to do with an Australian's feeling of being overwhelmed by the presence of ancient history in a place like Italy. Yep. Uh, you know, the, uh, I have to keep reminding myself as an Australian that when I travel the countryside, I'm in the presence of of um, I'm in a place that was the that was the place of a culture 40,000 years in the making, maybe 60,000 years in the making, but in um, which shadows and dwarfs the five the 5,000 year history that Rome displays on its surface. But even so, um, the, the presence of that history so physically in Italy has um, a strange and, and disconcerting impact on an Australian consciousness. Yes, deep time, I think we might call it. Yeah. No, and particularly when our conventional lives are usually focused on the immediate present, you know, the day or the month or the year or perhaps Mm. the year behind or the year in front, but, you know, hardly more than that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Being in the presence of that, that ancient history in Italy and around Rome, Strangely enough, I came back from that with a, a deeper and more respectful interest in Aboriginal history in Australia. Yes, that's a big topic. It is a big topic. Yeah, yeah. And Bigger than that poem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but no, that's something we all need to uh, develop a greater appreciation and understanding of somehow. Oh. But, uh, it's possible to feel very disconnected living in the city uh. Uh. from the deeper time of the Aboriginal experience. Mm. And maybe on a more um, on a more tri- trivial level, a more shallow level, one of the things I liked in writing this poem was to be able to use the word ziggurat. It's such a lovely word. Yeah, I got. Well, I think I just got interested in ziggurats at, at a certain stage when I was looking at modern versions of them in architecture and then uh, recognised the style right. on a hillside. Stepped pyramid style. Mm, mm, yeah, stepped dwelling style in any case. Yeah. Now, you've got a poem here about a friend of yours um, who died, James Tate. Now, 
Who was um, who was James, James Tate? Okay, James Tate was an American poet, poet and short story writer, and he came out of uh, he was not he wasn't a surrealist, but he came out of that kind of sensibility, um, and he had a kind of um, fantastical but conversational style of writing poetry, and I have loved his poems for a long time. And uh, he died fairly recently. Would you like to read that poem? Okay. So this is, this is a homage to a fellow poet. Um, a poet who's achieved a lot more than I have in poetry and whom I admire deeply. On reading that James Tate has died, it could have been one of your sly poems that supposed you'd died, proposing what might be said by some New Yorker reviewer about you after you'd gone. Quietly gregarious in the spirit of Emily Dickinson would do for starters. And then something about inner universes and the crabbed beauty of your poems. You, the poet, might have slipped away, but it's as if you're about to return to us with a new poem telling of your travels. Your new poem will observe in its crabbed manner, but it's always, we discover, a return ticket we're travelling on, the dust at our feet at the end, no dustier than where we stood at the start. But, quietly gregarious traveller, you won't return without a new story of some miracle of coincidence on a train or a beggar who followed you from city to city, from continent to continent, until you yanked off his shabby coat and old shirt, convinced you'd find wings folded down his back. Or a day you spent beside a lake that longed for you to dissolve into it. And you did, after discarding a gum wrapper just to let posterity know you'd been there. It's, um, it's a lovely elegy, you know, just leaving a gum wrapper behind, dissolving into the lake. Um, and a gum wrapper is such an American artefact. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that's a, a gesture towards his Americanness. Mm. Yes. Yeah. No, it's uh, it, it's it's a lovely elegy. The um, the painful thing about writing a poem like that is is knowing James Tate will never read it. Yeah, of course. He'll never know the love that was directed towards him. Yes. And the gratitude that's directed towards him from one of his readers. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, look, um, I think that's all we've got time for. Uh-huh. But uh, you're, you're sort of doing a bit of a round Australia travel at the moment. Yes. I'm in Portland right now um, and uh, at a place called Point Danger. And um, there's a big wind farm behind me. Right. When I'm sitting here hoping to see a whale, but I don't think we will. Oh. Well, may- maybe there'll be one somewhere else. Yes, I'm sure there will be. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I've been speaking to Kevin Brophy about his new book, In This Part of the World. Uh, well, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you, Di. And if anybody wants to get hold of a copy, it's easy enough to get them from Brunswick Bound Bookshop in Brunswick. Excellent. Thanks, Di. Thanks, thanks, Kevin. 
That was Kevin Brophy talking about his new book, In This Part of the World, and we'll go out with a track from the Gregorian Brothers album, Distance. And my name is Di Cousins, and this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme.